This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Following on from episode 130, in which we discussed the events and people behind the Battle of Hastings, we're now shifting our attention to the years that followed on the 950th anniversary of the end of English rebellions against the Normans in 1072. We often think of 1066 as a big turning point in English history, but it actually took another six years for the Normans to consolidate their power over the country and its people. We begin our story with William the Conqueror's coronation on Christmas Day at Westminster Abbey. And joining us to discuss that event and those that followed are Senior Properties Curator Roy Porter. Hello there. And Curator of Collections and Interiors for the South East, Catherine Bedford. Hello. Well, William's coronation at Westminster Abbey took place two months after the death of the previous king, Harold Godwinson, who of course was killed at the Battle of Hastings in October 1066. So why did William's coronation take so long? Well, initially, William actually had to fully take control of the country. He won the Battle of Hastings. It's possible that he hoped that that would immediately mean that he was accepted. But it wasn't. Only the day later, one of the other claimants to the throne, Edgar Aithling, was actually elected King of England by the Archbishop of Canterbury and some of the other nobles. So there was an immediate decision on the part of many people within England not to support William's claim to the throne. And William then had to spend several months becoming accepted before he could be crowned. I see. So that's something that we don't really appreciate as well when we sort of taught this at school or... It's quite a complicated period of history of transition. Very complicated. And one thing I would say about this event that we're about to discuss now and the podcast as a whole is we are going to have to simplify slightly. There is an awful lot of events that happen over an awful lot of different counties over many years. And we're going to be trying to tell you a comprehensible story. And that will inevitably mean that there are some details that we're going to have to leave out. Okay, that's completely understandable. So maybe if I could bring the next question to Roy, how did William choose Christmas Day for his coronation? Was this a deliberate thing? Well, Christmas, of course, is one of the great festivals of the church's year. And as Catherine's just explained, there's this sort of hiatus between the victory of the Battle of Hastings and the point at which William is accepted as king by people in London. And really, Christmas Day you know, fell conveniently close to, to the end of that period. It was, it was an opportunity where people have been in, the, in London anyway, celebrating, and, and, and William's coronation was chosen for that period. We ought to say, though, that Christmas remained important for William. During William's reign, he would formally wear his crown three times a year. And those three times were Christmas, Easter, and Whitson. So that gives you an impression of just how important Christmas was. But even William's coronation, it was quite a tense affair, was it not? Well, it's certainly tense for actually a few different reasons. You've got present people who have been actively in opposition to William mere weeks earlier. You've got a slightly more internal conflict that's happening in terms of within the church in that Britain has two or England has two archbishops those of Canterbury and York but the archbishop of Canterbury at the time Stigand is hasn't been canonized properly there's all sorts of issues around him and his validity so he isn't able to do the coronation himself and it be counted as a, a proper authentic coronation so he's actually crowned by the archbishop of York with Stigand just there sort of assisting there's also 
concern about what's going to happen. So William has some of his men outside preparing to potentially pacify any crowds or rebels that might occur. And according to a couple of sources, they mistake the cheers within the church as actually conflict happening there. So they then start burning parts of London in response to something that hasn't actually happened. So it's all very confusing moment and not maybe the start that William would have wanted. But there is a very conscious attempt made to combine English and Norman customs. He seems to be deliberately attempting to soften some of the tensions within the coronation, though it's not really successful. So it didn't, doesn't really get off to a very good start, really, does it? It's very confusing. Yes. It's... And all the while, we've still got um, this other incumbent. Oh, you mean Edgar? Edgar. What happens to Edgar? Well, yes. Um, Edgar is never officially crowned. He had been, as I say, back in October, elected, which was the English kings at the time were technically elected, but he was never crowned. At this stage, he's still in his early teens. So he's a figurehead as much as anything. He's a, a pawn in the games that are being played by powerful men within England. And he has, in early December, formally submitted to William. He is present at the coronation and is technically at this stage accepting that William is the king. That will not last. Right, okay. <laughs> Just imagine the mood in London at this time, though. I mean, William has arrived having effectively ravaged the countryside around London, you know, around to the south of London, to the west of London, to the northwest of London. This isn't a sort of a peaceful arrival of a foreign king. This is somebody whose soldiers have terrorised the local population. And here he is, as Catherine says, now attempting to reconcile his rule to the native English. He promises he's going to rule according to the laws of um, his predecessors or the best of his predecessors, I think, is how he put it, provided the English are loyal to him. And you know, what choice do they have in a sense? You know, a lot of their leaders have been killed at the Battle of Hastings, seeing just how powerful William's forces can be. They have, a, as Catherine says, this terrible demonstration of the Norman attitude towards the English at the first sign of trouble, they start burning houses around Westminster Abbey. And in fact, some historians have debated whether or not what actually happened is that the, the riot, if you like, was caused by Normans attacking English people outside the Abbey, even before the acclamation started, and that, that the Norman sources tried to justify this as the Norman guards panicking. But you know, that story doesn't quite make sense because if, surely they would run into the Abbey to protect him. But instead, what they do is they, they seem to run out of the abbey and start burning houses round about. You know, so this is not a very auspicious start to William's reign. And in fact, from everybody's point of view, the worst possible start, I suppose, but reflects the general tone of 1066, which is that this is very much somebody who's come and is conquering England. Yes. And it sounds quite chaotic still, almost sounds like even though that the fighting has stopped on the on the battlefield. There's still a lot of tension and conflict within the powers that be and um, among the population as well. Absolutely. And this is not a moment of the completion of the conquest to an extent. I don't think that really anyone in 1066 thought that this was it and William is now secure on the phone. Nothing is going to happen. It's getting him crowned gives him further ammunition in his ongoing attempts to actually take full control of the kingdom. It means that he has that religious sanction. He has officially been made king. He has been anointed. And that helps him going forward. It's not the completion of the process. 
Already, I think we're all getting a good sense of the fact that this is quite an unsettling time. Nothing is cut and dried at the moment. William is on the throne. He has his crown, but the mood is still quite varied across the country. What was the mood actually like in various parts of the country? One thing we have to remember is that at this point, only the southeast of England actually directly had any experience, really, of William's rule. Um, and so you talk about a varied mood. You can imagine that in the southeast, the mood will be sullen, possibly feeling slightly defeated. In other parts of the kingdom, the mood will probably be no less sullen, but you know, allied with a, a greater sense of the possibility of resistance because they, they haven't been confronted with the, you know, the immediate force of William and his army. You know, the west and the north of England are largely untouched by the new regime in Christmas of 1066. On the other hand, there may also have been a sense of it being prudent to wait and see how things transpired. I mean, as Catherine said, William appears to be doing his best to reconcile English and Norman interests at his coronation. It does seem that at first, William made some attempt to rule in a manner that would be acceptable to his English subjects. But yet this attitude changes and hardens as a consequence of the resistance he faced. Actually emerges in places which are quite unexpected. So, for example, some of the resistance emerges in Kent, of all places, one of the parts of the country which William first put down, where there is an insurgency uh, around Dover. Uh, do you want to say something about that, Catherine? In the early spring of 1067, William actually briefly returns to Normandy. He takes with him some of the important people who, within England, who had been part of that initial resistance. So he takes Edgar Aethling with him, he takes Archbishop Stigand, and he also takes two of the major earls, Edwin of Mercia and Morker of Northumbria. And this is to an extent, he's going back to Normandy and he's proving his success. He's showing off what he's achieved in England and he leaves his brother Odo in charge. But while he's away, Kent, which as Royce says, has been one of the first places that he had pacified, there's this rise around Dover that's particularly supported by Eustace II, who's Count of Boulogne. And this very, very early point highlights something that's going to come up again and again, which is the fact that what's happening in England is being influenced by rulers and monarchs in other countries. Everyone's trying to get their oar in. Everyone wants to have a say in who is actually on the, the English throne. So a lot of the time when we talk about resistance to William's rule within England, it's actually being backed up by foreign powers. And we see this right at the start in Dover, in Kent. We also see that sort of thing play out through other time periods in history. Yes. It's not just um, an internal rebellion. Very much so. So all of these rebellions, certainly every rebellion that, that we're going to talk about today has some element of foreign influence in it. So after the death of King Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings, were there other family members and others loyal to Harold who would have rejected William as the new monarch? Yes, absolutely. Harold Godwinson left behind uh, brothers and sons, and his mother as well remained a, a significant figure. They became the focus of a number of activities around the southwest. Harold, prior to being king, having been the Earl of Wessex, and therefore his power base was there. So in the year following the conquest, there's a number of activities that culminate in the Siege of Exeter, where the gates of Exeter are closed against William and he goes and spends slightly over two weeks 
besieging the city and he is finally able to take it. He does take the city, but Harold's family escape before he does so. And his sons go to Ireland and raid down the coast of England and the Bristol Channel over the next couple of years, attempting to encourage resistance within the southwest areas around sort of Dorset and Cornwall, but they're not actually successful in doing so. And all the while, we've got Edgar Aithling, who's previously submitted to William's rule. Um, he was present at the coronation at Westminster Abbey. But what's his relation to the key families in England at the time? Edgar was the great nephew of Edward the Confessor. So his claim is coming from Edward directly as his relation. Right. And Edward the Confessor was, of course, the, the king who died without an heir. And this is what caused this chain of events to lead to the Battle of Hastings eventually. Yes, absolutely. If Edgar's father had still been alive, then the Battle of Hastings might not have happened. There would have been a whole different issue with succession. But because his father died and Edgar himself was really quite young, he was not considered perhaps a viable ruler straight away. Well, is there anyone else then who rebels against William's seizure of the crown? Yeah, there certainly is. In fact, 1068 is a year which sees rebellions against William. Everything had been going quite well in a sense. You know, in 1068, William's Queen Matilda is crowned. And at her coronation, you have the marvellous combination of English and Norman nobility all mixing together. The picture that's just presented is of perhaps William having achieved the very difficult task of reconciling these two groups of people together. And very shortly afterwards, it all unravels. Edgar Aithling goes off to Scotland, but there's two other English earls, Edwin of Mercia and Morcar of Northumbria, who are the brothers of King Harold's widow, who had actually reconciled to William, who then go north and rise up against him. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that many people rallied to them and that they were ready to resist William should he march north. And that's exactly what William did, by the way. He marches north building castles on the way. And that's one of the things we should say that you know, these campaigns which William fights in are campaigns which castles are established at major strategic places. We've heard about Exeter. When William goes down to Exeter, he builds a castle in Exeter. On his way north, he builds castles at Warwick, at Nottingham, and at York. Clifford's Tower in York, the, the mound in which Clifford's Tower is constructed, the mot there, is built by William as part of pulling down this rebellion. And that's exactly what he does. He puts the rebellion down. The earls come to terms with him. And in fact, William then begins to put new men in charge of the north, including a chap called Robert de Comine, who is sent to Northumbria. And Robert marches up to Durham, and we're told that he's killing and pillaging on his way there, that the people of Northumbria rise up. And in fact, Robert and his, his men are massacred in a bloodbath in Durham, and another rebellion starts. And again, William has to march north to York, where he defeats the insurgents and actually builds a second castle in York. And then just to confuse matters completely, you've had this situation where the North has been up in arms. William's been up there twice. He's put down two rebellions. Now he's got a foreign army who's been sent by the, the King of Denmark, King Svein Estrithson, and it lands in the Humber. And they go and take York, and William again has to march up there, ravaging the country uh, as he goes. And the Danes retreat back to the hum Humber, agreeing to leave the following spring. Now, effectively, what William does is he buys them off. He agrees that they can take forage from the countryside. But the flip side to all this is that on his third trip to the north, 
William is determined to punish the North and to be certain that it can no longer harbour rebellions against him. And so what he does is he sends his army into the countryside to pursue fleeing rebels. But not only that, they're also there to kill, to burn, and to ravage as they go. And this is the so-called harrying of the North. And it leaves a really bloody stain on William's reputations. You know, we're told that there's a scorched earth policy with all crops and herds and chattels and food being burned and destroyed. And the result of this is famine, with thousands starved to death. And in fact, there's one source which says that no village between York and Durham was left inhabited. So you know, this is the culmination of these three uprisings in the north. And I think it really shows you when push comes to shove, this is William's reaction to this, which is absolutely ruthless. But he's confronted by another problem. Those Danes I was talking about, who he's paid off, don't go home. They stay in the Humber. And in the following year, 1070, the king of Denmark comes to England himself. His coming to England means that part of his army marches into East Anglia, where there's a whole other rebellion going on. I think Catherine's going to talk about that. This is real Game of Thrones stuff, isn't it? It's, um, Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating, because this is just not what one learns at school. You know, you could do a, a whole mini-series on this, some sort of dramatisation, couldn't you, really? It could be a six-year series, effectively. Yeah, and you've got plenty of heroes and villains in the middle, middle of it. Uh, and one of the figures that very much emerges within popular awareness of the English resistance is the figure of Hereward the Wake, and this is at Ely. So... As Royce just mentioned, the Danes join and what is already an existing rebellion within the area of East Anglia. And it has to be said that it's not just the Danish king as well. The Morcar of Northumbria, one of the earls we mentioned from the north, he also joins this rebellion. So this becomes very much an awful lot of different people from different places are converging on this sort of last really major point of rebellion against William's rule. And out of this, there are a number of different accounts. They tend to focus on different people, depending on the priorities that they have and who they're being written by. But I say, within the popular imagination, the central leading figure is Hereward the Wake, who is seen as a great English defender. He certainly existed. He is mentioned in a number of different places. We know he was definitely real. The extent to which he was actually leading things is perhaps less certain. But he's popularised by an account of his life called the Gesta Herawadi, which the earliest surviving manuscript is 13th century, but appears to have been written at the very beginning of the 12th century. So it's relatively early on, but it's also highly fictionalised. So it's useful. It ties in with certain things that are appearing in other chronicles, like the Anglo-Saxons Chronicle and the Book of Ely. It's called the, the Libra Iliensis. But parts of it are very, very obviously fiction. So we've got a very much a historical rebellion that's incredibly important in terms of being one of the, the last really major pieces of opposition to William's rule. But out of it emerges the start of English national heroes. That's really interesting. So effectively, the North has been harried, but yes. there's still this opposition uh, through this character. Uh, this almost Absolutely. mythological and, uh, kind of character. He, 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 of he, he's very much a, say, a mythological 
character to an extent. The guest of Herawadi includes things like him rescuing princesses, and it's an early element of the proto proto outlaw stories that will feed into what becomes the Robin Hood myths. So parts of it are very definitely not true, but you've got him attacking the Abbey of Peterborough. You've got really quite significant military action within this rebellion, but also it's kind of like guerrilla warfare. They're retreating into the Fenland, areas where it's very difficult for William to bring his army because of the difficulties of the terrain. It's very waterlogged, very boggy. People have to know the area to be able to transport large numbers of people easily, which makes it very defensible. And it's therefore one of the reasons why this area is sort of a last holdout in a way. You mentioned Peterborough there, which is Cambridgeshire today. But was Hereward also operating in the north? How far are his exploits? They sort of end up being based around Ely, but they're covering sort of large areas of East Anglia. Is Ely Cambridgeshire, is that right? It is, yeah. So yes, uh, he's more of a a southern figure then, Hereward. He's a local figure to East Anglia, but as I say, he's, the rebellion that's happening there that he is a part of is drawing in these figures from the north. He's drawing in the Danish armies. The Danes are only there until June of 1070 and continue activity around Ely for some time after that. Okay. Would you say that then this area around Ely was the strongest opposition, probably the last opposition as well to it's one of uh, the, the Norman presence. one of the last major holdouts but in terms of ongoing opposition i would say that the north still does there's still activity happening in the north significant activity that, that requires william to send his brother odo up there in, in 1080 the north doesn't just go away after the harrowing and we we talked in the introduction about this 950th anniversary of the end of the conquest really in 1072, but you've just mentioned 1080 there. So clearly, even another eight years after that key date, there's still a lot of ongoing kind of resentment and resistance. The extent to which the later activity is a deliberate attempt to depose William, I think you can perhaps see the difference there is between people who are trying to prevent William being king and revolts against a king who is more securely in place. Like the revolt of the earls in 1075, which is a rebellion of the earls against William. But a lot of that's about the fact that William hasn't sanctioned a particular marriage to take place. It's quite specific grievances against a king who is in place. Whereas what's happening with the rebellions in the north in 1069 and in East Anglia in 1070, 1071, that's much more about people... Rejecting the invasion, really. The invasion, yeah. Whereas by the time you get into the late 1070s, the early 1080s, William is facing the kind of rebellions and uprising that many medieval kings faced. It's nuanced, really, depending on which part of the country you're talking about and which group of people, whether they're more rebellious figures or whether they're higher up in the power structure and have accepted the coronation. They've got their own quarrels, effectively. They do. And you you have to remember that no medieval English king was entirely uncontested. There were minor rebellions, there were minor skirmishes. That that was just a, a normal part of medieval kingship. Wow. Fascinating, isn't it, Roy? It's just a real melting pot of conflict. <laughs> if we're taking the longer view across William's reign, the last big crisis for William's reign happens really right at the end, 1085, 1086. There's another threatened Danish invasion 
And this harks back really to something Catherine said right at the start, which is that, you know, people in other countries are taking an active interest in what's happening in England. There's a new king of Denmark, another King Canute, in fact, and his reporters be amassing a huge invasion fleet. And William is really concerned. You know, he comes back from Normandy to England and prepares for a possible invasion from the east part of the country. And I think the reason why this is so interesting is because part of that concern reflects the fact that, you know, what we call English or Anglo-Saxon society is actually Anglo-Danish. There is a residual Danish sympathy, particularly in the northeastern eastern parts of England. So much so that one of the things William is reputed to have done is to have told English people living in the English counties of, of England to shave their beards and to cut their hair so that if the Danes arrived, they would think there were Normans living there rather than English people, because they would assume that the Normans wouldn't be sympathetic to them. And I think that's a fascinating little detail about you know, one of the sort of cultural differences between the Norman immigrants and the native English. Yeah, well, that's a cultural war, cultural signifier, isn't it? Yeah, and, and he's concerned that there is still this residual sympathy um, for the Danes, and that, that even at that late stage of his reign, there is the possibility that if the right person can come in from across the North Sea, everything he's achieved could fall apart. That's really interesting. It's, it shows a sort of slight air of desperation on William's part, isn't it? It's such a small detail, but if he could convince foreign invaders that they're not dealing with people of their kin, then potentially they'll give up and go back home. Yeah. I mean, we ought to say that the Danish fleet never arrives. It never sets sail because the King of Denmark is actually murdered before he has an opportunity to make his great attempt on England. So William is very fortunate in that regard. But the threat was real. William responded to that threat as being extremely dangerous. What we've been describing there then, Roy and Catherine, is that the kingdom has actually got a long-term association with countries across the North Sea, specifically Denmark, in, in the case that we've just been describing. Did the English kingdom, shall we say, have any relationship much with Normandy up until the Norman invasion, or were they mostly associated politically with those countries across the North Sea? In the century immediately prior to the Norman conquest, there had been a fairly strong connection to the Northern European Scandinavian countries, particularly as a result of the repeated Danish invasions and the rule of Canute. However, it, that was never entirely the case. There were ongoing relationships with France and Edward the Confessor in particular had a strong connection with France and Normandy, having spent a lot of time there in his youth. And that was sort of where the connection between him and William came from that gave William his claim to the throne in 1066. Because, of course, Edward the Confessor, the king who, who dies without a direct heir, William remembers that he was promised the throne by Edward. Yes. Yeah, that's right. William and Edward are cousins. And, you know, if William has a blood link in terms of the, the English royal family, this is it. It's not a particularly strong one, it has to be said. But of course, what William claims is that this is really the beginnings of the, or the basis in which Edward promises William the throne. It's that promise which William promotes as essentially the basis of his right to be king of England. Mm. 
What was the relationship then with Normandy then? There was a stronger relationship by the sounds of things with the Scandinavian countries, but there still nevertheless existed a relationship over the channel with Norman France. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, we have to remember that if you're living in England, trade will be with Northern France. And so culturally, the Scandinavian influence was strong, but it was strongest on the eastern part of England. Other parts of England had close relationships with the, the opposite side of the English Channel. Of course, it changes completely after William's victory at Hastings, because you know when he becomes king, he's both king of England and Duke of Normandy. He is a French subject, a subject of the French king, effectively ruling autonomously a large part of northern France. He's also king of England. And what English sources tell us is that what William does is to use the resources of England to pay for his campaigns protecting Normandy and his French interests. We've described quite a, quite a complicated period and it's hard to go into a lot of detail because it's quite messy, shall we say. Oh, very but, much so. um, It's a bit like untangling a whole plate of spaghetti or something. But um, on the ground, how did the Normans actually go about seizing, quote-unquote, English land after 1066? Well, it has to be said, this is quite a long process. So in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Hastings, the lands belonging to Harold Godwinson and those that had fought with him were confiscated. But other pieces of land are gradually taken. Over the course of these rebellions, those who rebel often have their lands removed as part of their punishment. So over the next few years, there's sort of an increasing tendency for the Normans to be taking land, but that wasn't necessarily originally the case. But when we look at the Doomsday Book, which is produced in the mid-1080s, the 1085, 1086, you're looking at the Normans having taken over the vast majority of the land. And it's estimated that the value of the land within Doomsday is about, in total, about 73,000. At that point, the English are only actually owning about £4,000 of that. The rest has gone to the king, Norman lords, and is owned by the church. So proportionally, English ownership of England by that stage is practically nothing. It's tiny. Okay. And what would have happened to the actual people who were evicted? The Normans are coming in and becoming the elite. They're not necessarily becoming the farmers. The people who are actually working on the land are still largely the same. It's the lords and some of the people immediately working for the lords that are the ones that are coming in from Normandy. And the lords, what happens to them? Do, were they executed? or? Well, if we take one example, we've mentioned a couple of times Morkor of Northumbria, one of the people very early on who supports Edgar Aethling. He's involved in the harrowing of the North and then he's involved in the activities at Ely. And he is continually sort of goes, oops, sorry, yes, I accept you're the king now, William. And he's held at court and treated with favour by William. And then he goes and rebels again. And so he's lost his land right at the start, but he's not executed. He's being kind of held as a semi-hostage, but they're not. And ultimately, after Ely, he is finally imprisoned. Um, and he's in, in prison for the last sort of decade or so of William's reign. But William says on his deathbed that the political prisoners, should, people like Morcar, should be released. So actually, there's a whole crowd of people like him who are released immediately following William's death and then are actually executed by his son. Oh. <laughs> so William does try 
to not execute people and to not imprison people where he can. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's not what eventually happens to them. I mean, this is really important, which the Normans see as distinguishing themselves from the English, that the English kill their enemies. But the Normans, at least with their high status enemies, they take them prisoner for the most part. And it's the difference between sort of the outlook of what they would regard as being a sort of a, a Christian, almost chivalric outlook, and one which is barbaric. And they will look down on the English as being barbaric because they kill their enemies. It's also the way in which they look at people around England as well. And so they will look on the Welsh and on the Scots as being barbaric because they kill their enemies and they take slaves, whereas the Normans don't do that, generally speaking, at least for the people of high status. People of low status get treated very badly indeed. So you know, when William takes a place, it's not uncommon for him to hack off the hands of people who've defended it, at least for the low-ranking people. But for the high status people, they're taken as prisoners and they get to live their lives as prisoners in a, in a certain degree of comfort. Another example, of course, is Edgar Aethling, who ends up living his life in his country estates. Here's somebody who has been in active rebellion, somebody who's acknowledged and you know, elected as king in 1066 by people in London, somebody who was perceived as a threat to William's throne, and yet he ends his days living peacefully. He's still alive in the 1120s, by the way, 60 years after the Battle of Hastings, living on his country estates. So the way in which people are treated depends on their social status. Mm. William's title then as monarch, we, we know him as William the Conqueror. We don't really talk of him as William the First, I don't think, but he's also William the Dealmaker, depending on your status, isn't he? Well, when he can control the terms. I mean, he's certainly prudent, isn't he? You know, when he goes, when he takes Exeter, we go back to the, one of the things we spoke about right at the start of the programme, and he goes down to besiege Exeter, takes the city after 18 days and loses a lot of soldiers whilst doing so. And we know that he sort of comes to terms with the people of Exeter. You know, he's prudent in the sense that at that point, you know, he's taken the city, but you know, he can satisfactorily respect his own honour, but also achieve a settlement by coming to terms with the people there. But the terms he comes to are very much terms which you know, make sure that he, you know, he, he wins the day, so to speak. When you think about what he does in the north of England, he is utterly ruthless. And when you think about, you know, the, as you said right at the start, the tone of what he does in 1066, there's very little sense in which he, you know, he wants to negotiate a settlement. He is demonstrating that when push comes to shove, bloodshed is something which will occur if his rule is resisted. Yes. It sounds as though he's exercising controlled aggression. And the higher your status, the more likely you are to survive. Yes. But you know, one thing we haven't spoken about is the way in which William saw himself as king in terms of ownership of land in England. There's a completely novel situation which happens after 1066, where William says that all land belongs to him. Now, this hasn't happened before 1066. After 1066, William says, look, all the land belongs to me, everything in England, and I'm going to grant the land out to the church, some of the land I shall grant to my lay tenants in chief, but it all belongs to me. And this is one of the, the reasons why the English test William's rule, because what he does is he allows them, or the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says he allows them to buy back their land. In other words, William is now saying to the English, the land you live on is mine. Of course you can continue living on it. I want to be a benevolent king, ruling as English kings have always done. But in order to continue living on that land, you're going to have to pay me. And you can imagine if they can't pay him, yes. they're going to be dispossessed. 
So for people who um, might understand a little bit about property, me included, he's become the superior landlord. Everyone else is a leaseholder, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to pay pay rent and service charges. They have to pay service charges. (laughs) They have to pay ground rent. Exactly. Yeah. And they have to provide night. And if they're his tenants in chief, they have to provide nights for that land as well. God, goodness me. He's really got his clutches into everything, isn't he? And he's created a completely different system. But there's something that we haven't talked about, which is there's an influx of migrants, I believe, as a result of this land grab who come over from Normandy to make their money, I I suppose, in, in agriculture. Is that right? There's been an estimate that around 8,000 Norman landholders came over. We can't really say lower status than, than that because you you can't start counting up numbers. And even that estimate is based on that sounds like a foreign name rather than an English name and that sort of thing. But you certainly got a significant number of people coming in at the top levels of society and they will be bringing some of their people with them. Yes, there's a, there's a change in the elite. Yeah. Looking at other aspects of Norman influence, what can we list them as in England? We've, we've touched upon the castles that were put up as a result of um, various areas being controlled and put down. What other th- examples of Norman influence do we see in the landscape today? The Normans, as well as using castles as a means of control, also used the church and the building of cathedrals and abbeys as another means of having physical places of power around the country. If you can imagine that you're in a world in which everyone lives primarily in wooden buildings, the building of massive stone cathedrals is a statement that the Normans make in the same way that they they build massive castles, they build massive church buildings. And these are, are institutions that are culturally influencing the local area yeah one of the one of the striking things about what happens after 1066 is there that there's a building boom isn't there great churches so every great church in england apart from westminster abbey is rebuilt i think in the 50 years following 1066 so all the cathedrals all the major abbey churches are, are rebuilt you also have of course a great boom in paris churches as well and perhaps for many people this would have been the more obvious sign of things changing. We have to be slightly careful here because the shorthand way of describing a Norman church is based on its architectural style. So we say a, a, a Norman church is, has round arches and round-headed windows, etc. And so some Norman churches may be built you know, 100 years after the Battle of Hastings. But nevertheless, it's very interesting that you have this major building boom. And in terms of the physical fabric of the country, you have... Paris church is built in stone, you have major rebuilding of the great churches, and you have the imposition of around 500 castles by the end of the 11th century, which belong to people other than the king. And these castles are going to be symbols of lordship. It's where people will go for the, the local court. It's where people will go to pay their dues to their, their local lord. Now, these are things which can make their mark very physically and symbolically on the lives of the people in England in the decades following 1066. Yes, and that's very interesting uh, that these pieces of architecture are effectively very solid permanent markers in the landscape and and they embed themselves into the minds of the people after 1066 as well. But someone who doesn't perhaps embed himself 
completely is William himself, because we've mentioned a couple of times that he's gone back to Normandy. I mean, he wasn't always there, was he? As a boss, (laughs) as a boss, he was one of those ones who's going off and playing golf on a Friday. Do you know what I mean? Well, this is one of the problems that post-conquest and actually pre-conquest with the Danish influence, kings of England who are not only kings of England, why should they be here all the time? And actually criticising him for not being king of England in England is, he, he's also Duke of Normandy. He needs to rule there as well. So he he and his successors are in a constant sort of state of having to balance their priorities. And William in the early part of his reign is predominantly in England. And then in the later part of his reign, he is predominantly in Normandy as he feels England is more settled. And when he's not here, he leaves normally his brother Odo in charge. England is very centralised. It's very stable by comparison to much of Europe. It's got a very strong administration in place. And William absolutely makes use of that. So it's kind of like a satellite, really, a power satellite. And it's one of the very interesting things that I think when we when we think about the Norman conquest of England, we tend to think of it as the Normans conquered England, then from then on for the next century and a half until the loss of Normandy in 1204, the English kings controlled this cross-channel empire and that continued until the, to an extent until the loss of Calais. But actually, William doesn't leave his combined country to a single son. He leaves Normandy to his eldest son, Robert, and he leaves England to his second son, William. He is not setting up a cross-channel empire he sees them as two distinct places that he happens to be in charge of both of them. It's not until about 20 years after his death when William II's brother and heir, Henry I, actually conquers Normandy in 1106, that from then on, the English king is in continuous control in Normandy. Uh, Interesting. And and at that point, the tables have turned in a way. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You've got this sort of 20-year gap, actually, where the King of England isn't the Duke of Normandy. So, so William is mentally in his own mind. He is not seeing this as I'm now King of England. The King of England is now also Duke of Normandy. He sees them as two separate things and he is ruling both of them independently. And the way he rules both of them is slightly different. He focuses in England much less on the fact that he is. He, he tries to avoid the fact that he's also a vassal of the King of France. The language that is used is different in England than it is in Normandy. And of course, that, that, that stores up all sorts of trouble for the future, yeah. because if you are one of these people who ha- you know, is a major landowner in Normandy and you own land in England as well, and the rulers of those two places are different and their policies are opposed, who do you swear allegiance to? Who are you more loyal to? Which emerges as a consequence of this split between England and Normandy after the, the death of William I. And it has to be said the William... The conqueror is not the only person who does this. Several of the great Norman lords who get land in England do a similar thing, where their original family land holdings in Normandy are passed to the eldest son, and the new lands that they've got in England are a means of providing for younger children. I see. This is all very interesting, and it further complicates things in a way, but hopefully people are still keeping track. For people who love their dates, how long did William actually reign? From 1066 through to his death in 1087. So not that long, really. 21 years. Yeah. It's not that long, is it, Roy? I mean... Well, it's not that long. And as Catherine said, he's not in England very much at all during that period. And yet think of the things which happen 
Think of what is established during his reign. Think of the, the, the long-term changes, which are consequence. It's one of the most dynamic periods of English history, history, undoubtedly in so many respects. And William is one of the most formidable figures of his age. His rule transforms the political fortunes of England, or the English, and transforms society in England in many respects as well. Lastly then, the, the legacy of the Norman conquest, uh, quote-unquote. We touched on a couple of things, castles, chivalric code, names, language, the Doomsday Book. Can you think of any others? We haven't really discussed language significantly in anything we've talked about so far, but obviously the introduction of the huge influx of the Norman elite into the country shifted the language that we use. William never learnt English, he never bothered. The majority of the Norman elite who came over didn't either, and that continued for a very long time. English was the language of the lower classes, not the language of the upper classes. And Latin and French, Norman French, which became a slightly distinct language from the French spoken in France at the time, it was referred to as as Anglo-Norman, became the language of the elite in England. And that has resulted in a lot of the language that we use today. The fact that certain animals change the word from the alive animal to the dead animal that you eat as a result of who's looking after it versus who's eating it. So sort of cow versus beef. Pig and pork. Yeah. So those those things like pork, beef, they all come from Norman French effectively. Yeah. And a lot of the the language that we have today is heavily influenced by France as a result of this particular moment in history, the introduction of the Romance languages into England. There's another legacy as well, actually, which is perhaps a bit highfalutin, but we ought to mention that there's a long memory of what happens in 1066. That long memory fashions and colours people's views about society. And it's particularly true. So, for example, at the time of the Reformation, one of the ways in which those who are proposing a break from Rome in the reign of Henry VIII would regard the Norman Conquest. So they would look back to the Anglo-Saxon church as enjoying a certain independence from Rome. This is how things might argue that the Norman Conquest introduced a far stronger link with Rome because of the way in which William reformed the English church. Even more powerfully in the 17th century, at the time of the Civil War, you have political theorists who look back, again, arguably erroneously, to the Anglo-Saxon as being a time of democracy, as being a time when people had far more say in how they were governed, and that the sort of tyranny was a consequence of the changes which were brought about by the Norman Conquest. And so the Norman Conquest becomes this, this flashpoint in the minds of people who are trying to critique and to change society in subsequent centuries. Absolutely, and it's still of ongoing influence today. If you look at the county of Kent, the motto for the county in Victor is a reference to the story that Kent was never conquered by William the Conqueror, that it was a deal that was made that the the men of Kent agreed to abide by his rule in exchange for retaining their rights. And this idea of what are the rights at the moment of the conquest goes right on. The Doomsday Book was still being used in the 20th century within legal cases as a record of who owns land, what land is where. Who? It's not just a historical source. For centuries and centuries, it is actually used within legal cases to understand landholding within this country. 
Well, um, I think that brings our discussion to a close. But um, thank you very much for trying to unpick all the jumbled up pieces and um, present it in a way that uh, hopefully people who aren't familiar with this subject can understand. Well, thank you. And I hope that anyone who is interested will look further because it's a fascinating period of history that we have not been able to fully do justice to, given the time constraints. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it is a complicated period. One of the ways in which you can get into it, though, I mean, and I would say this, is by visiting English heritage sites across the country, because there you can see the physical legacy of the Normans. In many respects, you can see how that legacy was built on top of Anglo-Saxon England. Go to a place like St. Augustine's Abbey, in Canterbury, you'll see the remains of the Norman Abbey built on top of the Saxon one. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we begin a new four-part mini-series on the Roman Empire's most impressive monument here in Britain, Hadrian's Wall. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>